You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Ridgecrest Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. To connect with us or learn more, visit us online at ridgecrestbaptist.org. So if you will, stand with me as we stand on the solid rock that is God's word. We find ourselves at the very end of the second chapter of Acts. We only have, you know, another 26 to go. So uh, we're, we're moving right along. Now, I want you to know that we're going to take a break next week and start a new series, Gearing Up for Easter. But it's going to be perfect in my view because when we get past chapter 2, we need to realize that the power of Pentecost didn't stop in chapter 2. You just see it carrying on through the rest of the book of Acts. And we need to be reminded why. The power of Jesus' death and resurrection is why. And so uh, we will get our hearts Uh, on fire for Jesus. We'll come back to Acts 3 here in about five weeks or so, and we'll be ready to go. But let's hear the end of the story, kind of the results, the application of the preaching on Pentecost and the ministry that took place. It says this, and they devoted themselves. They were lovingly devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were gathered together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that your love will pour out in this place today. I ask, Lord Jesus, that we will see a vision of your church, a vision for the future for your church, Lord, that is very much like what we see here in Acts 2. God, help us to adopt these practices, to simplify our lives so that we can be devoted to the very same things that your disciples, those first disciples, were devoted to. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Just this past week, we were talking with some friends here on Wednesday night, and the subject of Disney World came up, and my family and I, for years, we would make trips to Disney World, and my wife and I, we kind of like the classic Disney stuff, because I think we're classics all of a sudden, and I mean that probably in all senses, you know, we're, we're getting a little older, and so we like the older stuff, but uh, we, we enjoy the carousel of progress. If you've ever been to Walt Disney World, you probably don't like the carousel of progress, because basically it's boring. But when you're tired and it's hot outside and you can sit in the air conditioning for 15 or 20 minutes, it's a beautiful thing. But the whole idea of the Carousel of Progress is this idea that Walt Disney loved of innovation, progress, everything getting better and newer all the time. And you kind of go through these different scenarios and you see how times have changed and things have gotten better. But let me just say that when it comes to the work of the church, We don't want to be on the carousel of progress necessarily. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. 
we want to make sure that we are plugging into the things that the early disciples, the early church was plugged into because as we see here in Acts chapter 2 and beyond, there was success because these things that they were devoted to were from the Lord. They're from the Lord. And so notice this, every new generation of the church is guilty of attempting to reinvent the wheel rather than simply letting the Spirit roll. I believe that God wants us to just let the Spirit roll. And you know my heart. I'm not afraid of, of trying new things. I'm not afraid of, of trying to be the very best church we can be. And there's some great ideas out there. And all those things are okay, but they're secondary. We want to ask the questions today. What were those first Christians devoted to? Because we see that God did a great work. And there isn't a formula. There's not like if we just do A, B, C, and D, God will automatically bring revival to us. But I believe these things could be a game changer for us as individuals in our Christian walk, but also for us together as the church. Over the years, the church and individuals have been, in the words of the old hymn, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. I think the heart is always trying to drift in new directions, but I'm here to tell you that if we drift away from these basics, if we give in to the temptation to keep up with ministry trends, we will trend away from the practices of the early church inspired by the Holy Spirit. I want you to know that the enemy knows what works. The devil knows what works in the church. So it should come as no surprise that part of spiritual warfare is taking good folks like you, good, good leaders in the churches today, and trying to just always nudge us a little further away, to drift a little further away from what works. Our enemy, the devil, loves it when the church does not pay heed to the Word of God. So if you'll look here in the Word of God, it's very simple. It's right here. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and prayers. And I want to talk about these things today because the results were nothing less than the raw power of God. And I am convinced more and more, church, that what we need today is not just new methods or new ideas. We need the old-fashioned raw power of God at work and operative through individuals like you and me and through his church. I'm excited about the future of our church. I'm excited about the, the grip of grace that seems to be upon us. But if we are going to change the world, we must be in love and be devoted and love the things that these early Christians loved. And it all starts here at the top with us thinking about what it means here to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. Let me say this. I believe that being devoted to the apostles' teaching is to discover the mind of Christ. So let's talk about this for just a moment. What it means to discover the mind of Christ. Now, the mind of Christ is a Pauline phrase. Paul likes to use it. It's not here in the book of Acts necessarily. It's not here written by Dr. Luke. But we have in 1 Corinthians 2.16 and Philippians 2.5 reference to in Pauline literature of the mind of Christ. And we need to take that phrase for a moment and just consider what it means. Now here in the text, the apostles teaching, the very first place my mind goes to is doctrine. Some sort of delineated doctrine. You know, articles of faith or something like that. But I don't think that's really what's at play here. 
But before I, I tell you what I really think the apostles' teaching is in this context, let me just say this. The gospel of Jesus Christ requires us to know what the Word of God says. And if we know what the Word of God says, that means that we are aware of doctrine, that we are not afraid to learn what the Bible teaches about who God is and about our responsibilities for God. The apostles' teaching was based on the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. Everything drew from that, as Jesus shows us in his preaching and teaching. We see in Peter's sermon here in Acts 2, drawing from the prophetic messages of the Old Testament. We see the Psalms. We see the prophets. We see when Paul preaches, he's constantly pulling back from the Hebrew heritage, the Word of God. And if we ask the question, okay, well, what does it look like? What does doctrine look like in the early church? Let me just very quickly show you so that you know what I'm saying here, that we believe that there is an essence, a core of doctrine in the gospel. It's found in 1 Corinthians 15. So turn there very quickly with me. And I want to read the first eight verses. And I'm going to do this because in my view, Paul in these eight verses gives us the core the, the, the central bit, the nucleus of the gospel message. So when we say the apostles' teaching has a, has a doctrinal core, this is it. And I want you to hear this. This is so important. So when we are teaching and telling people the gospel, it needs to say things like this. Now, he sets it up this way. He said, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. So right there, we're getting a, a kind of a notes page here of former preaching of Paul to the Corinthians. He says, which you received, in which you stand. That means they heard it and they're still walking in it. And by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, here it is. Here is the essence of the gospel. The teaching of the apostles is, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, uh, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So Paul tells us right there, that's what the gospel is. The essence of the teaching of the apostles is that they taught that Jesus was a man who taught uh, the word of God. He was crucified on the cross. He, was, he, he died on the cross and was buried. Notice it says that according to the scriptures, he was buried and that he rose again. Not only did he raise up, but many people saw him and there were those. Paul is saying, go ask around. Many people saw Jesus in the flesh after his death. There were eyewitnesses to the crucifixion and the resurrection. We are here to tell you that the Bible story, the Bible uh, uh, presentation of the gospel and the life of Jesus is a historical reality. It's there. There's doctrine. It can be taught. And that is something that we need to consider here. But what about the rest of the apostles' teaching? It would be so easy for me to say, there it is. That's that's, that's the, the beginning and the end of it. The apostles' teaching would be 1 Corinthians 15. It would be those basic gospel doctrines. But the Lord began to really grab my heart. As I was looking more carefully at this passage, it would be a perfect segue to go from apostles' teaching to giving us an outline of doctrine. But it doesn't happen that way. 
There is not a specific, say this and say that, this is doctrine that you need to learn. No, no, no. Instead, I think what is being shown here are not doctrines from Bible passages, but these disciples had spent time with Jesus. And because of that, their lives were filled with love. The apostles' teaching is not just doctrine. It has a doctrinal component. But the most important thing is these apostles turned, or these disciples turned apostles show us how to live like Jesus. Yes, doctrine is important, but what we need in the world today are people who live like Jesus. These individuals spent three years with Jesus. Now, that seems like a lot of time, but think about it. Some of you have been in college for four or more years and still don't know anything. So three years is really not that long. But they had three years. Here's the deal. They had three years to be with Jesus. They had a front row seat uh, with Jesus. And I don't think that what Jesus taught them was to memorize all these doctrinal points to regurgitate, but he showed them how to live and he showed them how to love. The apostles' teachings, when we get a hold of those, it changes the way we behave. We behave like Jesus. And let me just put it in one word. We learn to love like Jesus. These disciples grew and the church in the early days grew because the people had a love like Jesus. Biblical doctrine is practical, absolutely, but we need to realize that biblical doctrine that doesn't teach us how to live right isn't practical at all. We want to learn the word so that we might live for Jesus. I want to ask you this question. Could any of us convince a lost person, an unchurched person, that we love them as Jesus loves them? You see, that's the key. When we are filled with the Spirit, it's not that we're just filled with doctrinal truth, but we're filled with love. And not just garden variety love, but we are filled with the love of Jesus. We need to be able to express to the world the love of Jesus. Mark Dever, who is the pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church and the founder of Nine Marks Ministry, is in my mind, in my view, one of the most brilliant evangelical minds of our day. He is so very thoughtful and helping the church to rediscover, I think, many of the things we're talking about here today. Dever has become a mentor to many pastors and many churches around the world. So he always has people coming up to him and asking, oh, what books do I need to read? Uh, who, who's, who's out there that I need to be read, reading so that I can know how to be a pastor and how to be a teacher? And every once in a while, one of them's brave enough to try to impress Dever uh, with what he's read. And Dever could care less because Dever's read more than you've, you've read. Uh, he's just one of those guys. He's brilliant uh, to no end. But he tells a story about how a group of pastors came up to him one day, and they were. They were talking about all the things they were reading, and they were so puffed up with their knowledge. And Deborah just stopped him and said, when was the last time you cared for an orphan? When's the last time you drove a widow to morning worship who couldn't drive anymore? When was the last time you donated to a homeless shelter, either your time or your money? And all of these men said no to all of those things. They hadn't done those. Dever looked him in the eyes and he said, I'm not even sure you're converted. These were pastors. The devil is an excellent theologian. 
But I promise you, he doesn't care or love anybody, especially the least of these. Church, it is imperative for us to have our doctrine right, but doctrine without the love of Jesus is worthless. The devil has doctrine, but he doesn't have love. We must have doctrine, and we must have love. As the awe of the early Christians grew, signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. I believe the more they saw the power of God, the more hungry they were to love one another and to share that love with the world. This week, as I've been meditating on this topic of revival, this idea that revival is perhaps stirring in our land, it's such an interesting time to be alive. A movie comes out about the Jesus revival from 69, 70, 71, 72, and now there's these movements. It all seems to be happening at the same time. So we're asking the question, what is revival? Will it look like it did in 69 or 70? I hope not because I don't like bell bottoms, but that's another story. It'll look different if it happens today. And we don't need to get caught up in the particulars, but I believe as I've thought about this, and I didn't get this idea. It wasn't original with me. Ian Murray, uh, in one of his books on history, the history of revival, he says this, he says that basically revival is nothing more than the church learning to love again. And that just spoke to me. Because when I think of revivals, I think of people getting saved and baptized, which that happens. And I'm thinking about people getting called to ministry, and that happens. But before those things happen, it's pretty simple. We love Jesus again, and when we love Jesus again, we start behaving like Jesus. And when we start behaving like Jesus, people take note. And they notice. Because guess what? Jesus' love is perfect and pure in a way that nothing we do is. I'm telling you, you can go up, and I've done it. Years ago, I, I, we were in Chicago. Kids were little. We were staying downtown, and it was a cold, snowy night, which is basically every night in Chicago, I think. Uh, that's where we're going on spring break. I think the high the first couple days is like 29, brilliant. You know, some of you are going to go get some sunshine. We're going to go to the frozen tundra or whatever. Um, but one night I was out, and I was talking, and I was sharing Christ with, with people just on the street. And I, I don't know why I did it. I just it, I felt compelled to do it. But I'm going to tell you that none of, my, none of my conversations or arguments were getting through. And I look back on that moment and I think, why was I doing it? Was I, was I doing it because I love them? Well, I want to believe that, that I did and that I do. But I don't know that they knew that. I don't know what this looks like. I'm not going to pretend to say I've got it figured out. But I do know this. The apostles' teaching, which is the teaching of Jesus, when the apostles spent time with Jesus, they learned to love like Jesus. And what the world needs, if revival is going to come to the church, then we are going to learn to love again. We're going to learn to love like Jesus, loving one another and loving the lost. The teachings of the apostles made them more like Christ. They discovered the mind of Christ, and the mind of Christ led to a kindness that is foreign to most people in this world. A Christian who is steeped in the word will pour out love and mercy on a hurting world. And I'm here to tell you, until we start doing that, until we start pouring out the love of Jesus on this world, we are not going to expect them to listen to our words, our doctrines. We will love them. But as we love them and they listen, we can pour out the sweet love of Jesus and also the truth of the gospel. We'll have a chance to share 
the gospel message that Jesus died according to the scriptures, that he was buried according to the scriptures, and that he rose again. We will have the opportunity to share those truths, but first, we must have the mind of Christ, and if we have the mind of Christ, we will have a heart of compassion. How's your heart? Are you loving people well? One way that we can see if we are loving people well is to discover the needs around us. Look at the text here in verses 44 and 45. So after all has come upon every soul and mighty wonders and signs are being performed through the apostles, notice this, and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, some people read into this some sort of early uh, communism or socialism, people pouring all their resources together and sharing. That's so silly because those designations and ideas are 1,800 years removed from the text. Uh, don't look at this and try to find politics, but I want you to realize the desperation. The reason why people were sharing all things in common, the reason why they were putting their, their belongings together and then distributing to those who had need is because of the radical nature of the situation. Radical circumstances require radical action. And when the church sees a crisis, we must be willing to go into crisis mode. So let me just help you understand this. This is not something that the average American that would sit in a church like this in, in modern times can understand. Few of us have been outside of the comforts of this country and the comforts of the Western world. So we have a hard time understanding radical need. Let me put it into the simplest terms I can. According to historians that know the poverty of the first century world in Jerusalem in particular, tell us that as many as, probably more than, 10% of the population was at any given time one day from starvation. Not one day from missing a meal. One day, one day's worth of carbohydrates from dying of starvation. That's a lot different than missing a meal. That means you've missed a meal for a week or more. That means if you don't eat today, today, on this Sunday, if before the sun goes down, you didn't get 500 calories in you, some carbohydrates, you'd be six feet under come Monday. That's the world that these men were living in. So when they sold everything, it's because they had to. They had to get radical because the needs were radical. When the love of Jesus gets a hold of the church, the church will see what needs to happen. And I want to say this, ministry, ministry, if it's truly ministry, it has to be driven by desperation. If we will open our eyes, we may have to go to the other side of the world. I've shared with the service this morning, the first service that for over 20 years, I wanted to go to Africa. I felt called to, to go and share the gospel in Africa. I got a chance to do that this last fall, and it was wonderful. We, we were able to preach some, I don't know, it was like 10 times or something like that. I can't even remember. It was such a blur. Uh, it, was, it was an amazing time. But we went up to this one area. It's called West Pukat. And there, for the first time in my life, I saw this kind of desperation. I, I saw what it looks like for uh, people to live just hand to mouth, literally. Now, it wasn't as desperate maybe as I've described the 10% situation here because there were water wells that have been dug recently and, and God's people have been providing and we've seen some neat things. But just a few years ago, 
none of that would have existed, and dysentery and things of that nature would have been far more, more prevalent. Let me just say this. I don't want to get into all the details here. You all know that there's great need in the world. You know that in, in, in an abstract sort of way. But let me tell you something. When we come to church on Sunday, and really all we're going to do is we're going to say we either like the song or didn't like that song. We like this point of the sermon, didn't like that point of the sermon. I doubt you're going to leave here today, if that's all you get from this, desperate about anything. And the reason why the church in America is doing so little sometimes when it could do so much is because of a lack of desperation. If we have the love of Jesus and we are truly thinking about the needs that are around the world, we will get desperate. Ridgecrest has been blessed with resources. And I want to tell you that as I look at this text, I believe that what God is calling the church to do is to recapture that sense of desperation. We have to look a little further afield, but we have a missions department. We have a local ministries uh, coordinator. We have, we have everything we need to see the needs that are around us. Are we willing? Are we willing to get desperate? Are we hungry to be desperate? John 14, says this. Jesus says, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That sounds like desperation. That sounds like if we are going to follow Jesus like they did in the early church, in chapter 2 in Acts, we must be willing to give everything for Jesus. It is our attachment to material things, and that is what is keeping us from meeting the physical needs around us, I fear. It keeps us from investing more in our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now let's take a more lighthearted turn for just a moment, because remember, what we're trying to do is rediscover what those early Christians were devoted to. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, the mind of Christ, which was a mind of love. That led them to love one another so well that they were willing to give away everything they had and pool their resources so that everybody could have a meal every day, so that people wouldn't starve today. They had a radical approach to meeting the needs around them. So that's more ministry outside. But notice this third element of fellowship. If you'll notice in verses 42 and 46, we are told that they were breaking bread in one another's houses. Now, some people see this as a technical term. Scholars will say that this is a technical term referring to the Lord's Supper, and that's not beyond the realm of the possible. But let me tell you what I think it means. I think breaking bread house to house, let me, let me translate, it means dinner or supper, depending on what part of the country you're from. There's nothing technical here at all. It's a reminder that those who had spent time with Jesus They understood the need to have doctrine and to love like Jesus and to meet the needs of the people outside of the fellowship. Um, But it also meant that they needed to meet the needs of fellowship and within the fellowship. I think if you'll look here in verse 46, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Now, if they did Lord's Supper like we do Lord's Supper, there is no way that they had glad and generous hearts um, after this meal. They would be saying, can I have some more, please, right? Um, you know, it would not be enough. There's not just a, a like spiritual religious service happening here. I mean, that line, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, that sounds like a Baptist at the buffet. I think that's what's going on. So some good home cooking is the fast lane to the heart. And I want to say this, that the church today, we cannot give up on fellowship 
within the body of Christ. I think the bigger a church gets, the more we think that it's okay that we don't spend time together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We make the excuse that there's too many of us. If you show up in the first service and see this room completely full and with all these people, you just get overwhelmed by it. How can I make those connections? How can I invite somebody uh, to come over? So it's so funny. You know, saying this is so self-serving. It sounds like I'm just trying to get a free lunch from you people. In fact, somebody gave me this, and I've got an invitation for lunch already. So, you know, you're on notice. I've already, already got one invitation. Now, honestly, that's not what I'm after here. This is not self-serving at all. But how many times have you sat in the same row? Because I know you're probably not sitting right next to somebody because you spread out too much. But you've been on the same row of someone who is incredibly lonely. How many times have you been in a section with a family that's been coming to church and visiting, but they've never even hardly got to know another person's name? We, we, we can only overcome that by intentionally upping the game with fellowship, which means opening ourselves and our homes to fellowship, to get to know people. I'm here to tell you that one of the most dangerous things in the world today is isolation and loneliness. People will come in a room like this and you say, well, at least they're getting that. They're getting the fellowship of the saints. This can be one of the loneliest rooms in the world if you're surrounded by people and never have a conversation. How many times have you come into worship, and I get it, moms, you're upset because the kids didn't do what they're supposed to, and your husband did even worse. How many dads came in, and they're thinking about tomorrow's work or whatever it is, and you come in, and you're distracted by the world, and you know what? You come in here, and you miss opportunities to show the love of Jesus to the people right next to you. How often are we missing fellowship? I mean, a meal sounds good, but for some of us, it could just be a conversation. It is a shame that too many of us walked in this room today and didn't have one meaningful conversation with another human being. We checked off the box and we were in worship, but we did not show the love of Jesus to anyone, and it was a choice. Some of you had plenty of time to do it, and you say, well, I'm shy, or this, or that. Listen, I understand, but your shyness is not an excuse for someone else's sadness and loneliness not being cared for. We have to be willing to fellowship with one another. Notice they were breaking bread together from house to house. It's important that you see this because at this time, worship was still happening in the temple. So there wasn't like a church building. So the fellowship was happening uh, locally in homes. Worship was still taking place at the church. There was not a restaurant involved here or a coffee shop, although those are fine if that's what you want to do. But here we see that these are individuals who are breaking bread, caring for one another. Let me just... Call it like it is. We are too busy to enjoy the basics of life. Fellowship is a, casual, a casualty to your hurry, your busyness. And that is a fact. We need to realize that if we are going to be devoted to the things that the early disciples were devoted to, we will be devoted to fellowship. We will spend time together. We push back against the darkness with joyous fellowship and some good grub. It really is that simple. And if you are a really good cook, I would love to find out about it. All right. Let's get serious again uh, and, and go from shameless pandering for free lunches to something more serious like prayer. Now, I'm going to be short here, and, and some of you laugh because I don't know if I know how to be short on anything, but 
Um, prayer is something we've talked a lot about. I think you guys get it. Now, I want to say this, that, that prayer is a key part of what the disciples did. Um, they discovered the power of prayer. Now, I think in a time like this when people are talking about revival, it's like if we pray for maybe like eight days in a row, is that enough or do we have to go nine days, Wayne? I, I don't know. See, we don't, we don't know. We, we will say, we'll say seven days, we'll schedule that, and then we open it up. But here's the deal. None of us on staff are saying that we've got a formula that says if we pray X amount, X amount of revival comes to us. So I don't want you to think that it's automatic. But let me tell you what is true. In Acts, revival always follows prayer. It's just that simple. Let me give you one example. Look at verse 42. And I could show you in chapter uh, uh, chapter 1, the same thing, but here in chapter 2, notice the last word in the ESV of verse 42 is prayers. Okay, so in my text, the last word is prayers. Now, listen to for, verse 43. And all came upon, A-W-E, all, not A-double-L, but A-W-E, all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Prayers, signs, and wonders. Praying, when God's people are praying, they're learning to love their God more. We are not praying to try to get something from God. We are praying so that we may know him and know his heart more. And when we know his heart more, then we know the mind of Christ. Then we get desperate about the needs that are out there. Then we want to learn to love our fellow Christians more. A church not devoted to prayer will lack the Spirit's power. And we can't cut corners concerning prayer and expect God to move. It's just that simple. But when we pray as we ought, we find a straight path to God's power and glory. I'll say it. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I learned a long time ago, I can't shame you into a prayer meeting. Now, I can. I can argue pretty convincingly. I can make you feel so bad that you show up to a prayer meeting just because you feel so guilty. Preachers know how to do that. Did you know that? That's one of the things we know how to do. I'm not going to do that to you, especially as it relates to prayer. Here's why. Because if you aren't called by God to pray, it means you don't understand prayer. If I have to make you think that it's an obligation, then you will find no joy in prayer. But I am praying that God will show you that a part of the Christian life Praise, gladness, generous hearts, it all flows from a prayerful heart. And look at the results in verse 47. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Doesn't that sound like revival? So the devotion of disciples, what were they devoted to? In one sense, we could just say, okay, they did four things. They, they were devoted to good teaching. They were devoted to benevolence. They were devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to prayer. If we just want to look at it in an ABC, one, two, three, rhetorical kind of way, there's your sermon. But let me tell you what it's really showing us. The devotion of disciples, of true disciples, is not a, a list. It's all about love. You see, those four things, you can check the boxes and be no closer to God than you were the day before. But if the apostles' teaching is really gripping your heart and your mind, you are learning to love like Jesus. 
If you are following Jesus, then you will love hurting, hungry souls. If you are following Jesus, you will love your brothers and sisters in Christ and actually want to share a meal with them. If you are truly devoted to Jesus, you will love God more through prayer. Notice that love covers everything. That if we are going to have revival, we have to have a rekindling of the fire of love. It's time to love again. Over the years, I have seen the tragic results of people who are still coming to church and doctrinally and ethically sound and completely void of love. It's the most dangerous thing I've seen in the church. I'm, I'm dead serious here. The most dangerous thing I've seen in the church is the person who has it all figured out except for how to love. I think that here we have in verses 42 through 47, very little doctrine stated. Here's why. Because before we can talk about what's true, we need to make sure that we have the love of Jesus. Those two things go hand in hand. Don't think that they, are, they can be separated. Oh, I just love Jesus. I do what I want. No, that's not what I'm saying. When we understand the love Jesus has for us, and then we grow in that love, it's then that we will think right. But I'm here to tell you, church, that you, as an individual, you need to ask the question, is the devotion, is what you are, are focused on and the center of your life, does it show the love of Jesus? Because if not, revival is not coming to you. It just isn't. It has to be love. And you need to surrender to that love. I remember what it felt like when I was 15 years old and I asked Jesus into my heart. I remember the excitement and the joy and the love. And there have been times in my life when I have felt that, that, that beautiful love welling up again. I have to tell you, even just watching the, the movie, the, the Jesus Revolution movie, I, I cried. I was joking with Jeremy Cook. I said, I haven't cried since E.T. That's a long time ago. In a movie. Now, I've cried since then. I don't want you to think that I'm some robot up here. I've cried many times since then, but not in a movie because, you know, whatever. But I, I really believe that as I watched a, a church, a traditional church, opening their hearts to just whoever walked in the door, I found myself saying, that, that's love. That's what I want to be a part of. And we feel that from time to time. But let's, be, let's just be brute, brutally honest with one another. Most days, and in particular, most Sundays, we're not feeling much love, devotion. We are showing up because we're diligent, because we're disciplined, but we are not devoted. And it shows. It shows in your face. It shows in your lack of compassion for hurting people. It shows in your lack of concern for the isolated people in your row. It shows. This is not a guilt trip. This is just a fact check. If you don't know the joy and the power of Jesus's love like you once did, that is a problem that can only be remedied in the altar or in your seat 
Let's pray that God will get us devoted in love again with him and with his people and with lost people. Let's pray that God will do that. Let's pray for revival. Remember what I said. Devotion is just another word for love. Thanks for listening. For additional resources, to learn more about us or get connected, visit RidgecrestBaptist.org.